1: It's Monday, January 7th, 2019. Oh my God, it's almost 2020. And you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis.
0: And I'm Kishore Hari. It's a new year, which means some changes are afoot. We have some resolutions, I guess, to make. And uh, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to switch up the format a little bit uh, this month We're and into the future. We're going to try to bring you a longer up-to-date based on some feedback we got To cover more stories and just give you a sense of of what's happening in the science and in the news and our reactions to it.
1: And we'll still be bringing you long form interviews. Uh, The first of the first episode of the month will more more likely be one of these up to date episodes where Kishore and I will talk about science in the news. And then you'll get a couple of juicy interviews to round out the month.
0: So it's 2019. Any new news? Catch your eye this week.
1: Well, I was pretty excited to, you know, hear about the New Horizons flyby.
0: This is, first of all, let's acknowledge the technological marvel that it is of sending a probe beyond the edge of our solar system into the Kuiper Belt, and they kind of picked a object at random that's moving, whatever, like 50,000 kilometers an hour, and said, yeah, let's point at that and see if we can get images of it. It's just the insanity of... They sent a probe six light hours away from Earth and managed to have it on target, come close to this uh, this object. They kind of picked a, a little bit at random.
1: And, you know, I think this news was especially sweet for me because I had the opportunity to talk to Alan Stern and David Grinspoon back in May for episode 224 when they were talking about their book um, that documents that first mission to Pluto And the whole just just understanding how much it took to get New Horizons going and where it was and just like, you know, just the the sheer size of this project, how many decades it took and how many people were involved. Um, And now here it is continuing to be even more successful than they had previously expected.
0: Yeah, you should go back and listen to that episode with Alan and David. And if you don't, you can follow Alan Stern on social media. He posts all sorts of pictures from Mission Control and gives you stories from in behind what's happening at the New Horizons mission.
1: Yeah. So, of course, people are debating on what it should be called. Uh, And one of my favorite memes was one in which they compare it to BB-8.
0: It's totally BB-8. Like, I mean, I know people are making, you know, frozen references that it's a snowman and Alan Stern himself <laughs> called it a snowman in the press conference, but it's BB-8. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's just put this to bed. Like, I I know Disney doesn't need any more, like, uh, license fees and I hope they're not going to charge NASA for calling it BB-8, but it's BB-8. It looks exactly like
1: BB-8. Well, and it might be time for a name change because there's a little bit of controversy surrounding its name.
0: Oh, yeah. the You're talking about the Ultima Thule naming,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: which I can't remember exactly what the translation of Ultima Thule is, but it means sort of like beyond the edge or beyond the ga- uh, galaxy. And it, it's sort of this sort of aggrandized term. But it came to light, I think, in March from a write- writer Megan Bartels, who wrote in Newsweek about how uh, historically that term had been briefly alluded to by Nazis and adopted more recently by members of sort of like neo-Nazi alt-right type movements to talk about their sort of like Shangri-La type uh, location for the afterlife. And uh, and that came to light to NASA during the naming process as well. So they knew about it, but they decided it was too obscure of a reference in these situations to to really... Bear any significance on their decision to name it Ultima Thule?
1: Yeah, and maybe that was the wrong decision. I mean, you know, I think now that is is receiving a fair amount of press, and maybe ultra, you know, uh, overshadowing how great this discovery is. But you know, and and of course, it, so f- uh, at least according to Wikipedia, Ultima Thule literally means the farthest Thule, and they they wanted to because because it comes into in two pieces. One is Ultima, the other one is Thule. Um, and what they're referring to is the fact that it is this most distant place beyond the borders of the known world. But as you mentioned, there is this association with uh, the Nazi party, which, you know, is very unfortunate. Yeah, I
0: actually think that MU69 is quite a fine name anyway. <laughs> so like <laughs> I wasn't that enamored with the ultimate tool name. I don't think uh, I, I'm going to go out there on a limb and say I don't think the naming thing is a big deal. Yeah, let's not name things after Nazi lore, but uh, I also think it, it, it's very obscure uh, in terms of the naming convention. and And I think we should focus on on the discovery itself, which is crazy. Like, we have a BB eight shaped object in this in this belt, and that makes no sense. How did this come together? Uh, and and they're just putting together some initial theories around this uh, that includes that that a small kind of cloud of a much smaller icy bodies, like started to sort of encircle each other and coalesce. And then eventually that formed two larger bodies, one smaller than the other that encircled each other. And they eventually collided and just got stuck to each other. Kind of like licking a, uh, a pole when it's really cold out and they're just stuck.
1: Um yeah. <laughs> but, I don't but, know what to say about that Kishore. Yeah,
0: I don't know. It's the best uh, it's the best uh, metaphor that came to mind. I don't know what that says about my my uh, Christmas <laughs> vacation. But I, I mean it's it's such a strange formation to have a bowling pin like shape because almost everything out there even the kind of weirdly shaped things have some sort of spherical or elliptical kind of shape to it. Um just because that's a lower sort of state of of energy to be in that spherical, uh, shape overall. It's sort of what we see most commonly formed and to see like these two lobes stuck together, uh, that thing must be tumbling over itself in in the most dynamic way possible.
1: Do we have any idea how old it is? I mean, is this something that is not going to maintain this shape for very long or what do we I haven't about that? seen
0: anything about its particular age at this point, but as we're recording this, information still coming out. I mean, as they indicated during the press conferences, it's going to be a couple months uh, for them just to garner all the data that's coming in. It's being transmitted at about one kilobit per second, which I think is pretty good Wi-Fi coverage at the edge of the solar system, by the way. <laughs> um but because it's so far that it's just going to take months and months for them to garner all the data that new horizons actually collected on the object and maybe that'll shed much more light about uh the uh, to the theories around how this could have formed and its age uh and maybe its future uh e- even though there's this incredibly dense area of of objects out there in the Kuiper belt uh the information I've seen is that they very rarely collide with each other. So the timescales of its sort of uh, production and demise, I'm sure are going to be on the, the millions, if not billions of years.
1: So I guess the next question is, do you think this is a swan song for New Horizons, or do you think it's just the beginning of, you know, uh, a next series of discoveries? Look, I thought
0: Pluto was a swan song. So I mean, (laughs) this whole, them going to the Kuiper belt and finding an object and actually sending back data on it, I think it just keeps blowing my mind that they're able to do this. So I hope it's not the swan song. I hope there's much more. Uh, And now I should, and NASA just keeps reinforcing that I should be optimistic about what they're able to accomplish. But as it gets farther and farther away, I just have uh, I just feel like something's going to go wrong out there. Right.
1: I mean, you know, you you would think so. Um, and, you know, according to some reports, it's going to take still, you know, as you mentioned, quite a long time for all the images and data to be downloaded. So I guess this is a gift that will continue to give. Um, And also, I just I just uh, looked up and it it turns out that they're calling the, you know, red space snowman 4.5 billion years old. Yeah. (laughs) All right. 4.5. So just about as old
0: as the (laughs) earth. That's that's really old. Uh, Also, there's about 15 to 20 years of life in terms of just the power aboard. Uh, New Horizons. So I know they're they're currently plotting out future things and more distant objects that they can plot out. I mean, this thing has been around for, what, 13 years and it hasn't had a system failure yet. So I guess keep going. But um, that seems uh, it, it just is remarkable and remarkable. It's a gift that keeps on giving.
1: So uh, as we wait for the demise of New Horizons, I want to continue talking about death in fact, for one of the stories that that came across my desk recently uh, and this is in in uh, response to the anniversary of a fifty year old report uh, from the Hastings Center on brain death. So you know before we had ways of really keeping people alive on ventilators and other machines, once you're you know pulse stopped beating. Once, you know, once your heart stopped beating and you stopped breathing, uh, that was it. But now, of course, we can keep people's bodies alive, even if their brains uh, no longer can recover. So we've had to sort of rethink our definition of death. And I think this is a really fascinating topic for anyone who's interested in medicine or anyone who just, who's interested in humanity, because it really comes at the core of what it means to be alive. Um, and so the Hastings Center has put out a kind of new report uh, w- with this 50-year anniversary, and it's a collaboration between the Hastings Center and the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical. And what they're pointing to are a couple of recent issues that have come up that have sort of really called this once again into question. And and one of the big um, sort of ways in which this Idea of brain death has come into question is the case of Jahi McMath. Um, so she was an African American teenager who was declared brain dead um, here in in the Bay Area, actually in 2013 after complications from an elective surgery, and uh, her her family uh, rejected that uh, you know that that name or you know that that the classification. And instead moved her to New Jersey. And uh, they fought
0: very In in both privately and publicly, that that convention.
1: Absolutely. Now, why would they go to New Jersey? Well, they went to New Jersey because in New Jersey, there is a religious ex- exemption. And when a patient is thought to be covered by this exemption, then you can enroll them in Medicare and you can pay and, and get uh, their long-term care paid for. So for nearly four years... Jahi McMath was kept biologically alive, how, however we define that, um, until she was declared dead finally from cardiac arrest in 2018. Uh, so in this particular report, there are three essays that explore you know, the different questions that are raised by this particular case and sort of lead us to really think about how we should be defining death, whether it should be left to the states, whether it should be something that is countrywide. And I just think it's a it's a really interesting ethical puzzle. You know, I'm Canadian and in Canada, you know, there is universal health care. So there is a a sort of bigger mandate by the state to sort of, you know, come up with these declarations and a lot of people worry that, you know, the interests of the state are not going to be always in line with the interests of the individual. So, you know, one example is is if you have, you know, someone who is brain dead, but whose organs are functioning, like, should you be giving those organs to people who um, need them and who will die without them? And then where do you draw that line? Like, how do you decide that the person uh, whose, you know, like whose brain, whose brain is is considered dead, like, how do you make that definition? Uh,
0: This is obviously uh, deeply personal, deeply intense, because this oftentimes collides with uh, religious conviction around this. Uh, There's, in fact, a a European country, I want to say it's Iceland, that has a regulation under consideration that anyone that dies uh, automatically is an organ donor by default. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that brings up all sorts of ethical concerns about where my personal rights uh, end and, and the state's rights begin. In this case... Let's be clear: from 2013 to 2018, like those those years from the quote unquote initial brain death to to her passing, it's not like she woke up or anything like that. She was basically on a respirator and was, you know, at the edge of life until a uh, uh, cardiac arrest came. And so, this isn't a a, a miracle kind of Hollywood ending where somebody wakes up from a coma and is all of a sudden fine.
1: Uh, I mean, you're right, except if you ask the family, they will say that there was meaningful communication coming from her, uh, you know, in, in ways in which, you know, um, sort of twitches and and slight movements and things like that, that they interpreted as her trying to communicate. And I think that there is some element of subjectivity here, if you take those kinds of behaviors as measures. And that's why I think, you know, doctors and have pushed towards more objective measures, like, for example, brainwave, data, suggesting that if there is total asynchrony in the brain, or, you know, if the brain looks in terms of its electrophysiology in a certain way, um, we can say there is no meaningful consciousness there. But that's that science is still not 100% sorted out.
0: Yeah, because and I totally understand why it's not sorted out, because death isn't in nature, isn't this automatic singular moment. It is oftentimes sort of spread out over time in a way that is very difficult i think for our brains to handle i'm not in the position of those parents i don't want to ever be in those position of those parents they've obviously had to make choices that i can barely relate to all that being said i think death is a is a decision of the state it's not a decision of the individual it's a decision of of medicine and um because there is like some probability and statistics that go into play but I don't know. I don't see death as an individual choice that you can decide what is and isn't um, uh, alive, nor that we should have a say as individuals in that. Is that is that crazy? I mean, you
1: know, it's, you know, it does sound it's, you know, it it sounds hard to hear, right? (laughs) Because each of us think uh, that there, if there's one thing we have control over, you know, it's our own sort of life in the, in the sense of whether or not we are alive, although, you know, that's obviously arguable. But um, I, I do think that, it, it, it puts an enormous pressure on parents and on loved ones to have to make these decisions. And I wonder sometimes if it isn't the more humane thing to do is to sort of have an objective line drawn uh, that sort of takes the pressure of the family, off the family to sort of make these difficult decisions. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Atul Gawandi's work and, you know, the way that he talks about having these conversations before we get to the state with our loved ones, you know how that can be incredibly empowering for the family and for the person. Um, if you know what their desires are, and if you make this, if you go through the decision tree in a moment where you're not quite as emotional as when you're facing the reality of a person actually dying.
0: Yeah, and anyone that's been through it can relate to the fact that end of life care is is a whole lot of gray area. Um, throughout it, there's a lot of decisions to be made that aren't. Uh, as black and white as we want them to be. Uh, and so I, I couldn't more highly recommend uh, some of Atul's work, especially his latest book, um, on this topic, because I, I do think it we need to uh, destigmatize a lot of those conversations and also take a harder look at what palliative care actually is and uh, the choices that we make during, during those um, last few days, months, even years in some cases.
1: We all want to be able to practice mindfulness every day, but sometimes it can be hard when we're overwhelmed with work or other aspects of life. Well, there's an app called Blinkist that can help. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information, so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because I read a lot of books and sometimes I forget which book had the nugget of information that I'm currently looking for. So in 15 minutes, I can go and get a refresher of all the books that I've already read and remember where it is that the elusive information is to be found. And recently on the show, we interviewed Robert Greene and his book, The 48 Laws of Power, is available on Blinkist. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash minds.
0: I have a, a story that still touches on individual choice a little bit, because we have one major scientific study that the U.S. conducts every 10 years that's coming up right around the corner. You know what it is? No. It's the U.S. Census. Now, this isn't one of those uh, things that's oftentimes considered a study, but it becomes the underpinning of so much work that we see uh, shared on an uh um. On an annual basis, in terms of economic reports, uh, reports on health and demographics, Uh, so many institutions use baseline census data to inform some of the larger trends they're seeing. So wait,
1: is there going to be a census if the government is still shut down in 2020? Uh,
0: Let's hope the government (laughs) is not shut down a full year from now, which is when the census is set to begin. Uh, There's been a lot of controversy around the upcoming census for two reasons. Uh, one is that it's going online and that's the first time that the census is going to be administered that way, which brings up all sorts of concerns about uh, access to uh, to the survey, how it's going to be administered, um, just sort of a, a digital access, which oftentimes hits uh, a number of communities that, particularly Native American communities that don't have um, uh, much computer access. Two, there's been a lot of questions about the questions themselves. There's been court cases related to that. But I think a far more hidden issue that's that's being discussed right now is this idea of privacy in the census. Now, when we fill out a census survey, we know that data is going to be used to be like, hey, uh, for us that live in San Francisco, uh, it's going to tell us all sorts of information about San Francisco County, uh, California in general, and then be summed up to the state. So my data, even though it's anonymous, I know is, is there's personal information out there that, that's going into a larger survey. There's always been this question of, because of how much information I put into the survey, about my demographics, my household income, all of these things, could someone reconstruct my identity, based off of access to the full information that's being put out there, combined with other data sets that are publicly available. And a number of researchers have been sort of pushing against this idea of how often can we actually recreate this? Uh, And this has put the census in a weird position. They have to make a decision about how much information to release, because the only way to ensure pure privacy of our data is not to release any information at all which is not the point of the census, right? So Mm -hmm. they have elected to apply a mathematical concept in 2020 called differential privacy. What a name, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think they probably need to spend some time rethinking the marketing of this name, but it's a really interesting mathematical concept, which is basically about finding the statistical edge of how much information to release from the information collected Uh, so that it becomes very challenging for anyone to reconstruct our individual information from it, Um, but not so much that it's perfect. So essentially, we're going to have like 98% protection based off of mathematical models of how likely it is for somebody to be able to reconstruct our information based on the census. How comfortable are you with that kind of Mathematical concept applied to your census data.
1: You know, I I feel like there, you know, the privacy issue, the, the, Im- the in- amount of information I give away for free <laughs> is way bigger, a much bigger concern for me. And, and maybe that's misguided. Maybe I should be really thinking more about the census. But, you know, recently my credit card number was stolen while I was in Canada. Someone was using my credit card to buy, you know, chicken at a fast food place somewhere in the US. And just two weeks before that, someone had stolen my debit card and used it to buy a bunch of stuff at the Apple store. So I feel like, you know, I had my credit card with me. And so obviously my data out, you know, have been out there a million different ways and someone's just found it. And so, you know, I guess I'm so blasé about it in terms of using, you know, all of these online tools to make my life easier that if my, you know, gender and and uh, financial status and, you know, height and weight and whatever other the census questions are come out there, I feel like that's actually less of a threat than, you know, my financial information, which already is out there. I think
0: practically you're right. I think there's so much information we give away for free, uh, whether that's conscious or not, uh, that uh, people are able to reconstruct our identity in a million different ways. I think the only reason there's so much focus on this is this is the government information on us. It's sort of like our tax data um, and how carefully they need to guard that because that has all sorts of personal information as well. And so we I do want them to guard against um, these privacy concerns and address them, especially in sort of a modern timeframe. But at the same time, I also recognize how influential the census is about driving all sorts of information about, uh, like everything from how we're represented in government in terms of the the population counts to how money is administered in counties in terms of uh, directing them to you know different housing projects to even like where uh, zoning regulations are set up for how where houses are built. So everything uses census data in a lot of ways. So. The one thing I'm really sensitive to that, you know, I I think this recent report doesn't really highlight is how much is applying this privacy uh, mentality to the census going to make it harder to take the census or more costly to actually administer it? Um, Those are real tangible things and practical things that we have to take into consideration because I have a feeling 2019 is going to be a year where we talk about digital privacy more and more and more.
1: Well, speaking of open access, there's one more thing I wanted to talk to you about and hear what you think, and that is the University of California versus Elsevier.
0: Oh, this fight has been going on for a number of years. Uh, I think some listeners know that I used to work at the University of California San Francisco for a long period of time, and a number of uh, faculty there, uh, including the the library staff had long indicated some opposition to some, uh, to uh, the costs related to uh, subscribing to a number of journals and that those costs were increasing at a rate that were unsustain- uh, unsustainable. And that's sort of coming to a fore as UC is in open negotiations now with Elsevier, which is the publisher of, of big journals like Cell and others, as they try to negotiate those fees. And a lot of conversation, there was even a discussion on our local sort of public affairs program uh, between a number of UC officials, including Nobel laureate Randy Schenkman and advocates for some of these journals regarding how much money these these journals make. They're incredibly profitable. They're uh, technically more profitable on a margin basis than Apple, which I think says a lot. But at the same time, a lot of discussion of like, who should we be angry at around this? Um, Fundamentally, this is like kind of an inside baseball thing, but also pokes at a larger issue. If the federal government is funding grants that pay for the research, which then gets published in a journal, should we as taxpayers have access to that information for free?
1: Yeah, so I I, sh- I need to uh, put out a conflict of interest statement right up front too. I am an associate editor at a journal run by Taylor and Francis, and uh, I do get a small royalty every year for the work that I give to them. But as an as a published author, I get nothing. <laughs> in fact, there are times in which I'm asked to pay to publish. Now, I don't. I, I actually have, have chosen ethically not to pay to publish, but there are a lot of Journals that are open access that require their authors to uh, pay to be published in them, and you know, I actually don't think either model is working well. Um, You know, I do think that the that open access is incredibly important. Uh, Maybe there needs to be a certain uh, timeline where you know, for six months, those journals have you know, there's a paywall, so. You know, they they can recoup some of the costs of publishing, although these days the costs of publishing have gone down, have gone way down because you don't really need physical journals anymore. Um, Everything's online. But I also think it's wrong to not allow researchers to publish their papers if they don't have the thousands of dollars they need in order to publish in an open access journal.
0: Yeah, this is this is where it gets really complicated. Like for those that aren't in the publishing world, the idea is you can submit to a journal like let's say nature which is a preeminent uh, scientific journal and they have editorial staff that uh, essentially assign it for review they get uh, peer reviewers typically on a volunteer basis to review the paper in your field Uh, and then it gets published in a journal like that there's typically a paywall that's usually somewhere around thirty dollars an article or obviously there's subscription fees associated to that journal There's a lot more journals now than there used to be, but that's like typically how a paid journal works. Whereas an open access is usually the researcher pays an upfront cost, usually like a thousand dollars or so for something like a, a, like a PLOS or some other open access journals. And then it's freely available once it's published. There are hard costs to publishing. There's editorial staff, there's putting this paper online, there's infrastructure, around that that needs to be paid for. I think everyone sort of agrees with that. But I think where it gets really complicated is this idea of, well, should it be freely available for the for the non-experts, for the non-scientists in the field? And uh, and I, I tend to agree. I don't think there's a model out there that's sort of perfect. But I'm going to put forth an idea that I think has not been said. I think there's a lot of fights about about these publishers being greedy and that open access is a way forward. I have somebody to blame in this fight. I, I want to blame some of the scientists around this. As it stands, and this is purely my opinion, that oftentimes when you get sort of reviewed for promotion and tenure, one of the things that gets looked at are your publishing. Uh, how many papers you publish? One what, of the things? <laughs> yeah, one <laughs> of the things.
1: For most, for many people, it's the only thing. Yeah.
0: And so one of the metrics associated with publishing isn't just how much you publish, it's the impact factor. And part of that impact factor is publishing in these high profile journals. Well, Mm -hmm. as long as we're holding up that publishing in nature and science and all these other high profile journals is the way we measure your performance, then we're going to keep putting up with a system that charges money back to the institution to subscribe to the work that they generated um the scientists by holding up this reward set of system this incentive model for their own promotion are the ones that are holding up the entire publishing system as it stands um, but oftentimes i hear scientists talk about it as if they don't have the power in this uh in this arena to actually make change and i think they do
1: Well, and I think that's what uh, people are learning with this uh, University of California uh, battle with Elsevier, because they are realizing that, you know, if UC is calling for a boycott of all of its professors to not review papers, uh, or, you know, maybe in the future, not submit papers to journals run by Elsevier, that's a big problem for Elsevier. I mean, you know, it's not going to shut them down entirely, but they are going to lose a lot of the, the, you know, the, the, the professors who kind of make the journals work. Uh, so I think that they, they are realizing they have a lot of power. Um, I thought it was interesting that the Max Planck Society, um, which, you know, sort of runs the online library for, you know, thousands of scientists in Germany, uh, in December, they announced that they're going to end their subscription to Elsevier journals. And, uh, you know, because they were backing this open access policy. And, you know, the if you're... If you're you know, wondering what's going to happen with UC and Elsevier, we don't know yet. Um, it looks like they extended the deadline now to January thirty first. Um, but you know, I, I think that there this could be a, a really a, a moment in which a big change can happen.
0: I'm a little more skeptical. I feel like I've seen this fight over and over again in the past decade, and while progress has mm-hmm. been made, I think you. I bet UC is going to cave. Uh, because they don't have a alternative, and I think there's a lot of scientists at UC that just want them to keep subscribing to Elsevier and just keep going the way it was. Um, I I will say there's a couple changes afoot that I think will make a difference longer term. Uh, one is that uh, uh, there's something called Plan S that, which is a European back program, where 16 uh, countries or excuse me, 13 countries have signed on that uh, work that's published out of their um, country immediately has to be open access. And one of the things that's interesting about this is China has expressed a lot of in- interest and endorsement of this plan. And as it stands, 18.6% of the world's papers are being published out of China, which is the largest share of any one country. It's ahead of the US, which is at around 17.8%. Uh, And so if big countries like China sign on to a plan like this, I think you can see change. And the other one is that I've seen a shift, particularly in astronomy and physics, towards preprints, which are unreviewed papers that are put up on sort of a freely available archive. And I think you're starting to see that emerge in biology as well. Uh, And I think when you, if we see a shift to preprints and still using the sort of peer review system in paid journals or open access journals then the information itself will still be out there for everyone to see and review. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the, um, the process to ensure that uh, this is all correct, the peer review process, the dissemination model, um, underneath all of that will, will slightly change. And I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the preprint model is is really interesting. And I think it is it is sort of changing how we think about and do science and even, you know, sort of registering in psychology, at least registering your uh, pre registering your your study before you even conduct it uh, to make sure that we don't sort of uh, fall total prey to either this replication crisis. Um, but I have also seen uh, pretty large scale articles that end up as preprints and then never go through peer review um, because the data are out there. And that makes me a little nervous. As as (laughs) Uh, it should. As it should. So, Well, we'll next time you hear us from up to date at the beginning of February, we'll have uh, hopefully more answers for you about what's happening in this epic battle. Um, That's it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of inquiring minds. We'll be back next week with an interview with Daniel H. Pink, who is the author of Drive and recently put out a book about the scientific secrets of perfect timing. It's called When. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Kyle Raihalla, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds and you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your New Year's resolutions, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
0: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Andre
0: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.